Lord, indeed, we will one day rise and meet you. Today we walk by faith. But one day, all that we have taken by faith will be sight. And we who sing your praises today and proclaim that the Lamb is worthy, one day in the fullness of awe for all eternity, we will thrill and rejoice at the grandeur of your grace, the benevolence of your mercy, the awesomeness of your power, and the greatness of your sovereignty. And so, Father, in this time of worship, we come to you now, and we ask that as we turn to your book, that your Holy Spirit would truly be our teacher, that you would infuse us with life, that we'd be yielded to you, we'd be filled with the Spirit, and that we would grow in an understanding and application of what it means to follow you in this generation. So, Lord, we come expectantly, and we look to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, that's the first book in the New Testament. All right, just curious here. All right, did anybody do the Waco Triathlon uh, last weekend? I'm looking here. We should have a few folks. They're probably still in recovery, okay? We should probably make the hospital rounds or something like that. Okay, so last weekend was the Waco Triathlon. And if you're looking for just a really, just an an amazing way to experience pain in your body, I would want to recommend this, okay? Uh, They kind of have, it all gets started at Indian Park there, Indian Spring Park begins, ends there. They had two of them. You have the Olympic triathlon. Okay, this is this is for the real serious. It starts off with a nice 1,500-meter swim, not in a pool, but in the Brazos River, okay? It's it's warm. It's murky. It's green. There's stuff floating around in there, but it's beautiful, okay? And so you got a 1,500-meter swim. And then you kind of, once you get done with that, you're feeling kind of refreshed, you hop on your bike. you got a 25-mile little bike ride, okay? There's not a lot of hills in Waco, but they try to find the ones that are there, and they put that on that little bike route. And then just to kind of cool down, you got a 10K run after that. So that sound good to you? Okay, so if you're going, well, you know, I've never done a triathlon. Is there kind of an entry level? And indeed they are. They got a classy name for it. They call it a sprint triathlon. Now, no one is sprinting, of course, but it sounds kind of cool. And this one's a little scaled back. You only have a 400-meter swim in the river. You got a 12-mile bike ride, and you finish that up with a nice little 5K run. That's that's 3.1 miles in case you're kind of wondering, like, hey, I think I could do that. Now, no one in their right mind would just go, you know, I think I read about this in the newspaper. I think I'll just show up and try it there. You know, you borrow your neighbor's bike and you think, I got it. I got this little Speedo. I haven't worn that in about 30 years, but it worked in college. I think I'll hop in the river there. You, no one would do that. You're going to train, right? You're going to get ready for an event like this. And then you're going to show up. And, and it is, you, there's some things you got to know. I mean, it's going to be tough. For instance, you got to have some idea who's kind of going with you. You're not doing this solo, okay? There is a lot of people that are out there. And then you know, another thing that's going to be really important for you to be successful in the triathlon is you got to know where you're going. It's not like just swim anywhere, just ride my bike wherever I want to, you know, stop at 7-Eleven. No, you, you have a course to follow, and they, you don't just run anywhere. They have actually a path that you're supposed to follow, okay? So you got to know where you're going. You also have to – here's a huge one. If you're ever going to do a triathlon or any sort of race – you have to be able to answer this question. Why am I doing this? Because about about four minutes into it, you're going to be going, what am I doing? As you're getting kicked by all these people. You always have to remember why 
I am doing this. And then, of course, you have to know, how am I supposed to get there? Okay, you have to have some idea of of how am I supposed to finish this race? What is going to be required? How am I going to get there? And then, of course, it's very helpful to understand some of the challenges you will be facing. Well, you know, just like athletes prepare for their race, Jesus, when we come to Matthew chapter 10, there is a major shift in gears. Jesus is preparing his disciples, specifically his 12 that he names the apostles for their first short term mission. It's not going to be the Olympic one that's coming later at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. This is going to be like their sprint triathlon. He's going to send them out on a little short term mission and he is going to tell them what exactly he wants them to accomplish. Now, when you come to a section like Matthew chapter 10, let me just tell you. The degree that you personally are involved with Christ's mission and his ministry is the degree that you are in tune and listening and paying attention to what he has to say. So, for instance, if if you're a not a Christian or B, you're a Christian, but you are on the sidelines, you are following Jesus at a distance. The whole idea of you being engaged in a ministry, seeing your occupation, your family, wherever God's placed you as your field of ministry. If that is a foreign concept to you or you choose to make it a foreign concept, this is how you kind of approach this chapter. Oh, when is this over? On the other hand, if you are a follower of Christ and you see Christ continually bringing you to a deeper relationship with him, always challenging you to do the next steps of involvement and growth and maturity in your life, and that is always Jesus' plan for his disciples, then when you come to Matthew chapter 10, you lock in really closely. It's the equivalent of men that are just about ready to go into battle. The commander shows up and he says, all right, men, listen, this is about what is going to happen, and this is what you need to do. Man, you are listening to every word. That is what is happening here with these apostles. Let me tell you, mission clarity is critical to ministry effectiveness. If it isn't absolutely clear in your mind as to what you're to do and how you're to do it, it leads to all sorts of confusion and breakdown. In fact, you can actually kind of look at the church at large universally, and there is pretty much widespread confusion What in the world are we doing here? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? Really shouldn't be a whole lot of mystery. Jesus actually already starts painting the picture, and he does so in this very first round in Matthew chapter 10. And so what we're going to find here is we've kind of made our way through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 verses uh, chapter 5 through 9, what Jesus is doing is he is demonstrating he is the authority. And he does so in his teaching. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7? He demonstrates that he's the authority. And then he proves it by the miracles that he does in chapters 8 and 9. He heals people. He casts out demons. He actually raises someone from the dead, in case there's any question, is Jesus Christ God? And after demonstrating his authority, both in his teaching and in his miracles, he is then going to call the guys that have been following him, his disciples, and he says, I want you to gather around. It's time to huddle up because no longer you're going to be sitting on the sidelines watching me do these things. I am sending you. What Matthew is doing is he is showing that from the very beginning, from the very first words when Jesus says, come, you follow me. He is always training his people to engage in his ministry. That has never changed. 
That's what Jesus is doing presently. He is drawing people to himself. And as he does, he is not only calling you, but he is commissioning you. And he's going to train and equip you to engage the world. It's not like we're just sitting in grandstands and cheering on a few people that are doing the ministry. We are all actively or supposed to be actively engaged in the ministry, engaged in the ministry. And that's what's happening beginning in Matthew chapter 10. So because clarity is critical, Jesus is going to tell his apostles everything they need to know to accomplish his mission. And the first thing you need to know is who in the world is going with me. And so that's what he begins in Matthew chapter 10. And we've actually covered these verses last week, but he is going to tell them. Who's going with you on this mission? So you see, chapter 10, verse 1, he summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority. That is huge. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The first thing that they need to know is, yes, he's sending them out, but you're not going alone. He gives them his authority. As great as the miracles that Jesus has done up to this point, this perhaps is the greatest one. For he is now going to do his work through his people. It's one thing for Jesus to bring do the healing or to or to take the lame man and make him walk. But to now do the exact same works through people that are in relationship with him. That is an amazing, astounding miracle. And so the first thing Jesus wants them to know is like, you're not going alone. I'm going with you. I want you to learn how to depend upon me. I am going to infuse you with my spirit. I'm going to give you my strength. And you are going to learn how to walk with me even when I am not physically present with you. Up until now, you could always touch me and you could always hold my hand and you could always see me. But I am going to send you out. But I'm going to do my work through you. By the way, that's true of all ministry. True ministry is only possible When it's done through God's power. So, for instance, what's going on with our kids? All the amazing things that happened at Vacation Bible School this week or sports camp the week before or our mission trips or what takes place in our small groups or fellowship families or our college ministry. No ministry is possible if it's to be true spiritual ministry unless it's done in Christ's power. So let me just tell you what that looks like, like before I come here. I'm down on my knees and I'm asking God for divine enablement, praying for you and praying for the word and praying for worship, because I know that in my own strength, I am absolutely incapable. But I know that trusting him, he can do his work. And that is true of all the ministers in our church. That's true of our missionaries. What they do is, Lord, do your work through me. And so not only is he going with them, but let me tell you something else. He actually starts naming him off. Remember in verse two, verses two through four, he actually starts naming them off and he puts them into pairs. When uh, Mark in his gospel in chapter 10, he actually records, Jesus says he sent them off in pairs. And if you notice, they were actually given in pairs. Okay, you had the sets of brothers, but they're two, 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 two. You see, ministry was never meant to be done alone. There's really the idea of the Lone Ranger Christian is pretty foreign to the New Testament. Even when Jesus sends his men initially out, he always does so where they go in pairs. And, you know, when you go it alone, you're going to quickly find that you are very discouraged. But when you've got another comrade that's with you, don't you find this? 
like one of you is up, the other one of you is kind of discouraged. And you can actually encourage one another. And just by the time you're starting to feel like, hey, yeah, I actually am seeing how God's using me, then your brother is taken. You know, and you have a way of actually encouraging one another. You're with each other. You can, you can talk with each other. You can give wisdom to one another. You can pray for one another. You are with one another. And that is why it is so critical in the Christian life that you actually have relationships with other people. I mean, in a room this size filled with these people, you can actually live in isolation. And to do so is at the peril of your own spiritual health. Because you need someone to engage with. You need someone to pray for, to invest in. And so he says, listen, I'm going to send you out light. But you're not going alone. You're going in two. So he says, this is who you're going with. But then he tells them, now, where are you going? And he actually specifically tells them, this is the track that you're to follow. And so verse 5, he says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so they had a specific target on this mission. Okay, and you have to know exactly where are you going? Who are the people that you're trying to reach? Now, Jesus is going to change this up on other missionary journeys. But on this very first one, he says, listen, I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. I don't want you to go to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles were anybody who were non-Jewish people. He's had a large category for them, the Gentiles. Okay? And Jewish people generally despise the Gentile. They were supposed to be reaching out with, the, with true relationship with God to the Gentiles, but they had kind of worked it the way that Gentiles are bad, and so we despise you. Those are the Gentiles. And then you saw this other one, the do not enter any city of the Samaritans. So they're in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Up to the north is primarily Gentile cities. So they're not supposed to go up there. To the south of, the, of Galilee, between them and Jerusalem, is this large section, and that was where the Samaritans were. Now, the Samaritans, really interesting. In 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and took over and they defeated the northern part of Israel, as per their practice, what they would do is they would take a whole bunch of the people they just conquered, they'd chain them all up, and they'd haul them off to a completely foreign land, and at the same time, they would bring people that they had conquered from another area, in this case from northern Mesopotamia, and they'd haul them off and they brought them to the land that they conquered. So these foreigners intermixed with what was left of the Jewish people, and they, and they married, they had children, they became known as the Samaritans. And those who were exclusively of true Jewish blood despised these who had intermarried and intermingled. And so because they were so despised, actually when the, after 586 BC, when the southern kingdom was hauled off to Babylon, when they returned, they started rebuilding the temple. The Samaritans, who had Jewish beliefs, and they were kind of mixed up with a bunch of worldly other beliefs, they said, we want to help you rebuild the temple. They said, no way. And they wouldn't let them. And there was this huge division that, that de- developed between them. In fact, about 100 years before this commissioning, in 109 B.C., the Jews from the south had actually gone and destroyed the temple that the Samaritans made. The Samaritans were following only the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They made their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And the Jewish people, about 100 years before this event, had actually destroyed it. The animosity was great. Jesus says, the Samaritans? I don't want you to go to them. In fact, he says, I don't want you to go to any city of the Samaritans. Now, it's not that they couldn't talk to Samaritans or Gentiles if they came in contact with them. But specifically, Jesus said, I want you to go to the, the lost sheep 
of Israel. Now, that is the, to an affectionate term of how God would refer to his people, Israel. He referred to them as sheep. He is the shepherd. These are the ones that he cares for. Now, sheep aren't known for their intelligence. Uh, they need lots of help. They get into danger. They're not overly smart. But God says, I'm going to care for you. You're weak. You have little resource, but you're my sheep. And you know how God shepherds his sheep? He chooses to do so through leaders, human leaders, in which he empowers, strengthens, and he has given his word. This is the problem. Remember in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus made a huge emphasis of this. The leaders of Israel simply were not leading. Well, let me rephrase that. They were leading, but they were leading the people astray. If anybody should recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, it should have been the leaders of Israel. What did they do? Uh, you know, this Jesus guy, we're not so certain about him. In fact, I'll tell you why he's doing all these miracles. I'll tell you why he can cast out demons. Because he's in league with Satan himself. And they, they assigned him to be in the camp of Satan rather than recognizing him as Messiah. They, wouldn't, they didn't teach the people about grace. They didn't emphasize righteousness that came by faith. They had all their rules and regulations. They were leading the people astray. In fact, many of the spiritual leaders of Israel actually despised the people they were leading because those people could never follow all the traditions and rules that they had tried to impose on them. And Jesus said, these are lost sheep. I want you to go to my lost sheep of Israel. And there's one other reason why Jesus commissions them to go to Israel. Remember reading in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis? In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, through you and to your family, I will give a blessing. And so what Jesus is doing is he is going to the very same family, the family of Abraham. That's where Israel comes from, from Abraham. And he is going, I'm going to do the work of announcing the Messiah. And I want to start with the family of Abraham. He keeps a promise that was made about 2,000 years prior to that. Well, that's where they're going. So one of the big questions is, why are you doing this? What exactly are you doing and why are you doing this? He tells them in the very next verse. He says, and as you go, I want you to preach, proclaim, and have the idea of always saying this, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why you're doing this. I want people to know that the king is here and that to have real authentic relationship with God, you have to enter into relationship with the king himself. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom, you've got to be in relationship with the king. And so you've got one message and that message hasn't changed. That is our message today. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king has come. And if you want genuine, authentic relationship with God, there is only one way. Jesus made it perfectly clear. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want real relationship with God, it is found in faith and in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this message is actually the exact same message that John the baptizer had. Remember, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Jesus' first public words that he uttered in ministry? You remember what it was? Exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even though the word repent isn't given there, it's likely inferred because that was the message that Jesus proclaimed and John proclaimed. Turn from your self-centeredness and your sin and turn to the king and enter into his kingdom. 
And so he says, I want you to go and I want you to preach this message that Jesus is Lord and there is life found in him. Turn from whatever you're engaged in and believe and trust in him. Now, now he's told him, this is what I want you to do. This is why you're doing this. Now he's going to say, I'm going to tell you how you're going to get there. This is what it's going to look like on your mission trip. So he says in verse eight, he says, I'm going to give you what is called credentials. I am going to make your words utterly believable. He says, I want you to do what I gave you authority to do. Look at this. Just imagine if you were these disciples and Jesus is telling you that you're going to do these things. I mean, I have a hard time getting a Band-Aid on, right? Okay, listen to what he says. I want you to heal the sick. That's more than like give you a Tylenol and I hope you get better. I want you to heal the sick. They're like, ah, oh, what is it? How, how can we do that? Then he says, try this one on for size. Raise the dead. You know, I mean, these guys have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. And now they're like, what? I want you to raise the dead. I, he says, cleanse the lepers. All their life, they had avoided lepers. Lepers run around saying, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. They would never touch a leper because they would be unclean. And now they're saying, Jesus says, I want you to cleanse the lepers. I want you to cast out demons. You know, who did things like this? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleansing lepers. Who is the one who cast out demons? Who is the, Who did that? Jesus did. In fact, those are the miracles that he did. Matthew chapter 8 and 9, those exact same miracles he intends to do through his men. And he says, I want you to do that. You see, what that does is these miraculous sign gifts were given to authenticate the message and the messengers. When they would show up in a town and they're like, what, are, what do you mean the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth? How, do you, how in the world do we know that we should believe you? I mean, is he ha- the Messiah has power. He's going to bring about healing. And these men would actually exercise the power of Christ. They could do nothing on their own, but they had the authority that he gave them. And this is really for a time. And he gave them a, an opportunity to authenticate the message and the messenger. Now, look at this. He said, freely you received, freely give. You might just kind of overlook that real quickly. But think of it. If you absolutely had the power to heal, you could make a lot of money, right? I mean, seriously, if you could raise the dead, for instance, we could like, Man, I'm really sorry about Uncle John there passing away. I'll tell you what. How about 5,000 shekels? I'll solve that problem for you. What? Really? Sure. No, he says, you're not going to charge anything for this. Never get it mixed up here. You are doing this to represent me. I'm going to take care of you. But freely you received, freely give. By the way, everything we have your intellect, gifts, finances, strength, life, breath. Do you know that this has been given to you by God freely? Did you purchase it? Did you earn it? Come on, honestly. Did you really think you earned that or you think God gave you that? He's entrusted you to it. He says, I want you to freely give. You freely receive. You freely give. And he says, I am going to teach my people to take care of you as you learn to depend upon me. Look at verse 9. He says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. 
Ooh. See, they're going on a journey. When you go on vacation, don't you make a, like a little withdrawal and say, you know what? We're going to need a little cash to get through this, right? If you go on a mission trip, you generally like take resources, right? So you're ready to go for, to pay for whatever you need. Jesus says, I'm going to teach you some huge lessons about what it looks like to follow me. I want you to learn to trust me completely. And so this is what we're going to do on this first trip. Now, he changes this later on uh, in like in Luke chapter 22. But he says, I don't want you to acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. So those belts that they'd wear around there and they kind of put all that money. He says, you know what? I don't want you to do that. They're like, Ugh, how are we going to stop when we get to McDonald's or McDavid's or whatever they're called down there? What are, how are we going to buy food? We can't just like, ah, we're hungry and a Big Mac sounds good right now. No. He says, listen, I don't want you to do that. Nor, he says, verse 10, or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And so what Jesus is doing is that he is going to teach his people, especially his emissaries, those who are bringing his message. You're going to learn how to trust in me. It is a huge act of faith. But I am going to take care of you and I'm going to show you my, the immensity of my power and that I will actually work through the lives of my people and they will learn to care for you. It is an act of faith on both parts, but that is how I'm going to, to move and perpetuate my kingdom. I'm going to advance it by you learning to walk by faith and the God's people actually learning to support and care and meet your needs. It is going to be a miracle on your part, and it's going to be a miracle on their part, but I'm going to do the miracle. And so that he gives them this directions, and he says, furthermore, when you, verse 11, he says, for the worker is worthy of his support. You see that at the end of verse 10? What he's teaching them is a principle that continues to this very day. You give yourself for the advancement of the gospel. I have called you and commissioned you specifically for a specific ministry. That worker is worthy of his support. And he says in verse 11, in whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. Who receives this message about the coming Messiah? And he says, and stay at his house until you leave that city. You find out who's worthy, who's receptive to the truth about Christ, about the Messiah, and you stay in their house. I don't want you moving around, around you know, from this place to the next. And it was considered a great honor to host a teacher or some sort of visiting rabbi, certainly an emissary of the king would be a great honor. He says, listen, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go and you find out who's worthy and you stay there. And then he says, verse 12, and as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And he says, and if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. And so this is what they did. And this was the common greeting. When you'd enter in a house, you'd meet someone, you said the word shalom. And the word is often translated peace, but but it's, it's more than just the absence of war or absence of conflict. It has the idea of, of complete well-being, body, mind, soul, that God's favor rests upon you. And so you would give this greeting to this house, like, peace be with you or peace be to this home or to this house. And he says, that's what I want you to do. But he says, but if it is not worthy, you see that in verse 13? You take back your blessing of peace. If these people will not receive your message about Jesus being the Messiah, that he is the Lord and King, he says, I want you to take back your blessing. And he says this, verse 14, and now this is going to get kind of troubling for folks because he's going to start ramping this up. 
Look at verse 14. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. So what he's saying there is he's reminding them of a tradition that existed. And this is what practiced by the Jewish people. When they would go into a Gentile territory, when they would leave, they're walking with their sandals. They take their sandals off when they got into Israel territory and they'd wrap it together. And, and it was kind of more symbolic. But any dust that would come off of that, it was like saying, we don't want to be contaminated with your dirt. We really want nothing to do with you. We don't want your influence in our life. You're going to be held in judgment to God. And so they would wrap their sandals. Well, these emissaries of the king, these apostles were to do that as they went and entered the homes of these people that would reject their message. And if they said, I don't, we don't want to believe in this Jesus. He's not the Messiah. Get out of here. And so to do so was to basically say, you need to realize that to reject the king has great consequences. In fact, he says in verse 15, truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, are you familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah? A cities were, that were so great that God brings about a judgment upon them. But notice what he says. Those who reject the king, cities that do so will face an even greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah, which basically stood out as kind of like the pinnacle of God's judgment upon wickedness. You see, the message of Jesus is this. He is the one who has life. He offers forgiveness, healing, wholeness. But to reject him is to actually bring judgment upon yourself. Think of how the gospel is oftentimes presented today. We, we want to present, hey, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved from your sins and, and life will be great. Kind of, you know, present that sort of thing. And that is that is true. It's true that Jesus forgives your sins. It may not necessarily, your life may not always be happy. In fact, you may face great trials and difficulties, but you will be eternally his. And there is a joy even in the midst of your difficulties that's found in Jesus. But on the converse, to reject the king is to actually bring judgment upon yourself. We oftentimes have the attitude that is just like, hey, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's great. But if you don't, it's not a big deal. In actuality, to reject Jesus as Messiah is to bring yourself into eternal death. So with the message of grace and the offering of salvation, there is always the warning that to reject the king, Jesus makes it completely clear there is judgment that you're bringing upon yourself. And it is interesting. As we go through the Gospel of Matthew, watch how much Jesus talks about hell more than heaven. A place you absolutely do not want to go. And so with increased understanding of God's revelation seems to have increased responsibility. So there seems to be almost like levels of judgment that happen. And if you know much and you reject it, it's like you'll face even greater judgment. So Jesus is talking about what it's going to look like and some of the and how you're going to get there. Now he's going to prepare his men for the challenges that they're going to face. He's going to, when we move into this final section here that we'll look at today in verses 16 through 23, what he's going to do is he's actually preparing them for the road that they will follow. Not just this trip, 
but more specifically for future missions. That's how Jesus works. He is always trying to help us grow. And one of the ways he does it is he's he's preparing us for the road that lies ahead. And so in verse 16, he starts telling him about the challenges you will face. This is these challenges have more to do with the future than they do with this present short term mission they're on, because he's going to talk about Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, his even coming at the very end in verse 23. But then he says, let me tell you about some of the challenges you're going to face. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm going to send you like sheep in the midst of wolves that like to tear you apart. So you are to be shrewd as serpents. Serpents were considered to be the wisest of the animals in the animal kingdom. But I also want you to be as innocent as doves. I want you to engage your mind, but I don't want you to intermingle with the worldly practices and philosophies. I want you to be innocent as doves. But let me make it perfectly clear. This idea of you being on mission is going to be dangerous. There are going to be hardships that you will face. He says, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Now, just imagine if you were Jesus' men. You're hearing about this amazing power he's going to give you. You're going to go and proclaim, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now he's starting to tell you that there's going to be people that are not going to like you. That's right. There's going to be people that are going to scourge you. This must have been some pretty sobering words, but he says they're going to hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. Now, that's like, what, what is Jesus talking about? Now, we usually associate synagogues with the place of worship. And indeed, that was in Jewish life started at the uh, Babylonian exile around 580s there. They developed these meeting places. All you needed were 10 Jewish men and you could have a synagogue. It was their place of worship. But really, it was their place of gathering. All events took place there including if you were going to, if punishment was needed to be doled out. Okay, so if the law gave all sorts of punishments for people who broke the law, well, those punishments were actually carried out in the synagogue. So if you're kind of trying to like, what would that look like? It'd be like the ch- like a church would be the place you'd worship, but it'd also be the place where discipline was carried out for behavior that was not in keeping with the law that you were supposed to be following. And so when he talks about being scourged in the synagogues, they would know what this looked like, and this is what it would happen. So, for instance, let's say you did anything from slander a woman to enter into this, to a synagogue uh, unclean. There would be discipline that would be doled out. The most severe discipline was 39 lashes. Okay, there was the idea was that if you were to exceed 40 lashes, and this was, these were the lashes with like calfskin that was kind of woven together, it was tied to a stick, and they would they would lash you with that. To do over 40 was considered inhumane. And so in their synagogues, you had a court. A court was made up of three men. If you had someone who had violated the law, they'd done something wrong, whatever it would be, they would actually administer discipline in their synagogue. Hard for us to reconcile, but that's what happened. And so these three men would hear the situation. They would pass judgment if it was a guilty verdict. That guy would be strapped down in front of the judge who passed it. And so he'd lay on his back. He'd receive 13 lashes on his chest with this stick with these calfskin thong there. And then they'd flip him over and he'd get 26 on his back. And these weren't like little things. These were serious. And I did some reading that if they thought that somehow that that person would die in the midst of this, they would halt it. 
or they would scale it to, what, to the degree of punishment that would meet the crime that was taking place, whether it was thievery or, or someone killed someone else's animal. But this is what happened. And so this was not a foreign idea to Jesus' men. But they never imagined that to bring the message of Messiah would mean that they'd be lashed up in a synagogue. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you need to know something. To follow me, to engage my mission, you're going to experience power, my power working through you. It will be amazing to, to be in working in tandem with me and to see me bringing the gospel to people, to do works that only I could do through you. But make no mistake, there is a high cost to following me and being my disciple. And he's spelling it out with real clarity. He says, beware of men, because guess what? They're going to hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will face rejection just like I am. And I will continue to. Others will do it. And not only will it be in synagogues, but verse 18. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So remember, Jesus sent them out to who? The lost sheep of Israel. But he's giving them future information for what these missions will look like. There'll be a day where you're going to give testimony to the Gentiles, to kings, governors. This would speak of people that were Romans, that were running Roman provinces, but even kings outside of the Roman Empire, like the Parthians. You will one day give testimony to them. And he says, don't worry, though. Look at verse 19. But when they hand you over, and this is kind of terminology that you would hand over a criminal. He says, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. Because remember this, you go on my mission. I'm going with you. And though it looks like this is the end and it couldn't get worse, you're meeting the ultimate rejection. Hey, guess what? I'm with you and I'm going to turn this obstacle into a tremendous opportunity. I myself will give you the words. The spirit of God will give you the words as to what you need to say. You don't need to stress. You don't need to live in fear. You need to walk by faith. And I'll give you in the very hour what you need to say to represent me well. He says, verse 20, for it is not you who speak but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I'm with you and I'm going to do my work through you. In fact, when you get hauled off into these synagogues and in front of these kings, just remember this. I'm going to do my work through you. I'll speak through you. My spirit will do his work. It is the spirit of your father. And he says, but you need to know something. It's not just the Jews. Now, to be forsaken by the, your own people would be one thing. And these Roman governors and handed over to foreign courts, which to a Jewish person handing another Jewish person over to a Gentile was considered a great travesty. But he says, it's going to get even worse. You're going to face opposition even by your own family. Look at this. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death. And father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endured to the end who will be saved. Now, whoa, those words are so 
difficult to even read. You're just like, oh, I don't even have a category for that. Let's scale it back here. How many of you have experienced animosity because you've become a Christian from perhaps your spouse, family members, relatives, grandparents? Anybody experience that? I'm the, okay, we, got, we have some. It's difficult, painful. You see, when you place your faith in Christ, you are going against the tide of culture. You are saying, no, there is but one way, and it is Jesus. You are, you are turning from self-centeredness and sin. You are trusting Christ alone as Savior. And that doesn't go well in a culture of self-sufficiency. And people will oppose you. Jesus is saying, in some cases, this is going to lead to your death. And if you want to see what this looks like in full scale, you look at like Revel, the book of Revelation. And in that final tribulation, that is exactly what will take place. You will have... People that will be going out, but they will be absolutely opposed by the governments, by the Jewish people, and even by families themselves. And he says, it is going to be very difficult. But he says, you will be hated by all because of my name. Because you identify with me, there is going to be a cost to that. And so if you're here today and you're really wrestling with, do I really want to place my trust in Christ? You need to count the cost. There may very well be a price that is involved. Maybe some funny looks at work. You may not get all the respect in academia that you thought you should be or get or deserve. You might have family members that will not understand you or or malign you or make a joke about you being some sort of religious freak. Or worse, all you have to do is start looking about what's taking place in the world. We have Christians, brothers and sisters, who face this kind of hardship. Because they follow Jesus. This is the gospel. Come by grace. But realize that to follow me may mean some serious hardship in your life. But he says the one who's endured to the end will be saved. You know what endurance does? When you go through difficulty, you face your failures and your fears and all your problems. And yet you still believe in Jesus, even though you feel like you're a miserable mess. Or you're facing great difficulty. The fact that you believe shows indeed you are one of his. And so he says, those who have endured to the end will be saved. But he says, verse 23, but whenever they persecute you from in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man has come. He says, listen, if they persecute you in one place, you don't have to just stay there and take those beatings. Okay, you can move on. All right. It's not wrong to honorably escape from danger, but it's always wrong to leave your duty. And so he says, you know, if you face hardship and difficulty, listen, if they persecute in one city, go to the next. But he says, I want you to continue this mission until the Son of Man, that is how Jesus referred to himself, returns. And that is what the plan is. The ministry, the mission continues. We keep going to those cities. Israel keeps hearing, but one day, Christ, who came the first time, said, I'm going to come again. When I come again, that is when the end begins. And until then, at this present time, you and I are to engage in the ministry. This is the mission that he's called us to. We're to bring the gospel of the kingdom. You know, there's some some things that we can think about. First of all, no matter how difficult your circumstances may be, and I know some of you have real difficulties, health issues, financial issues, when we're in a drought, 
Our ranchers and our farmers are feeling it big time. Occupational issues. But there's also there's people that are facing hardships because they represent Jesus or walk with Jesus in their employment and in their families. Realize this. God turns those obstacles into opportunities. And we can trust that God is going to help us no matter what. And so before you dive into the mission, friends, remember this. Clarity. It's critical. Do you know what he has called you to do and how you're to go about it? Think of about a diver. When a diver is going to make his dive, he's already thought through in his mind how he's going to do it and what he's going to do. Have you ever heard like, I will make it up while I'm in the air? Done one of those, you know, right? And just kind of, you know, and it hurts, it's painful, it's do that belly flop, everybody's like, <laughs> you know. You know exactly what you're going to do before you do the dive. Jesus wants his men to know exactly how to do it, what to do, and why they're doing it before they dive in us in. Because clarity is critical. See, mission clarity is critical to ministry effectiveness, and Jesus doesn't want his men then or his people now to be unprepared in any way. And do you know the mission continues today? I've been praying about this passage. I'm praying that God would grip our church in such a way that we will relentlessly pursue Christ and his mission. We will not be enamored by the things of this world. We will not grow into complacency. As we gear up into this fall, it better be more than football and nice school clothes and getting the right backpack. It is about engaging the mission. Because apart from relationship with Christ, there is no spiritual life, genuine, authentic forgiveness in life. And furthermore, there's condemnation. And so just as Jesus sent his men then, so he sends us now. And remember that he who has called you has also commissioned you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the clarity in which Jesus spoke on that very first mission. And certainly there are specifics to that first short-term missionary exercise and that trip. But there's a lot that we can learn because that mission continues to this day. And so, Father, you know where we're at. If we've come today and we're just so caught up in our own self and our life and our entertainment and whatnot that we pretty much put you on the back burner. Lord, right now we confess that is sin. We let all before you and want to rationalize it. We just say, Lord, you know all about it. But today you've got my attention. Lord, I want to take the next step of engagement. I'm listening. Help me to follow you closely. For those who are here who have never put their faith in Christ, perhaps never understood of the great grace and forgiveness or the eternal condemnation that lies in rejecting him, today would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know about my life. You know about my doubts. I'm a skeptic, but do you also know that I'm a sinner? And I know that, and I am turning from my sin. And, but Lord, I believe in you so strongly because of the faith you've given me. I'm turning from sin and self. I'm trusting you today. Father, for all of us, may we walk with boldness. May we be a people of the word and powered by your spirit. May you continue to do your work through us and glorify your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.